Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to Tuesday. It's the 25th of July and this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk. You can find us on Substack, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Just search for Peter Lewis's Money Talk and thank you for making the programme one of the most listened to financial podcasts in Hong Kong and Singapore. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, China's Politburo vowed at a key economic policy meeting yesterday to spur consumer spending, tackle unemployment and give more support to the ailing property sector as the mainland economy makes what it described as a torturous recovery from the pandemic. A readout of the gathering, published Monday by the official Xinhua News Agency, said the 24-member Politburo believed that the economic recovery was making torturous progress and it was necessary to actively expand domestic demand and expand consumption by increasing residents' income. The readout said it's necessary to boost the consumption of automobiles, electronic products and home furnishings and promote the consumption of services such as sports, leisure and cultural tourism. The Eurozone Flash Composite PMI, a measure of manufacturing and services activity in the region, dropped to an eight-month low in July. The HCOB Eurozone Composite PMI fell to 48.9, down from 49.9 in the previous month and well below market expectations. The reading marks the second successive month of the index coming in below the 50 mark, which indicates the majority of businesses are reporting an overall contraction in activity. U.S. manufacturing activity picked up in July but remained in contraction, according to the S&P Global Flash PMI released Monday. The manufacturing PMI increased to 49 in July from a six-month low of 46.3 in June, beating forecasts. Conversely, the services PMI was at 52.4, which was expansionary but was the lowest level in five months. The report noted business optimism has deteriorated sharply to the lowest level seen so far this year. And the survey said price pressures remain a major concern and further falls in the rate of inflation below 3% may prove elusive in the near term. Chinese property developer Dalian Wanda has raised 314 million US dollars through the partial sale of a subsidiary over the weekend and appears to have used the proceeds to repay a 400 million dollar bond which matured on Sunday. Several direct investors confirmed that the bond has been repaid. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and LUS Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster, Barry Wood. U.S. stocks rose on Monday ahead of a busy week of central bank meetings and corporate earnings reports. Equities were also boosted by flash PMI data, which showed economic activity slowed sharply in July. Investors took this as a sign that the Fed will be less likely to increase rates further after this week's anticipated rise. The Dow extended its winning streak to 11 days. That's the longest positive run since February 2017, rising 184 points, or half a percent, to 35,411. The S&P 500 rose 0.4% to 4,555. Energy stocks led the gains, with the sector up 1.7%. The Nasdaq Composite underperformed the broader market, adding 0.2% to 14,059. ahead of second quarter earnings reports from Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon and Meta in the coming days. 
Commentary in the US PMI survey, warning of sticky inflation sent Treasury yields higher. The yield on the two-year Treasury, which tends to be sensitive to changes in monetary policy, was up eight basis points to 4.93%, and the yield on the 10-year note rose four basis points to 3.88%. Hong Kong stocks resumed their decline on Monday. The Hang Seng Index fell 407 points, or 2.1%, to 18,668, adding to its 1% fall last week. The Tech Index, which lost 2.9% last week, fell another 2.2% Monday. And on the mainland, the Shanghai Composite made a marginal loss of 0.1%, closing at 3,164. That's the fifth day of losses in six days. Stocks of Chinese real estate developers slumped on Monday as concerns over an industry-wide debt crisis deepened and the government's stimulus measures failed to revive sentiment in the property market. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index closed 6.4% lower despite Dalian Wanda repaying a $400 million bond and despite measures announced by the Politburo on Monday to ease policy in the property sector. Country Garden, China's largest home builder, fell 8.7% to an eight-month low. Its property services wing tumbled almost 18% in Hong Kong. And JP Morgan sees 35% downside for Country Garden as it downgraded it along with Country Garden services to underweight. And Longfall properties fell 8.5%. But things are looking better this morning. The Nasdaq Golden Dragon China Index of US listed Chinese stocks closed 4.3% higher last night. Hang Seng futures are up 2%, suggesting that Hong Kong's benchmark index could open around 370 points higher. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneystalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Our guests are waiting in the wings. First up, we have Asian fund management industry consultant Stuart Allcroft. Morning, Stuart. And good morning to you, Peter. And also with us, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum, Time Asia. Morning, Mark. Good morning, Peter. And over on the other side of the Pacific from us here, we have our U.S. economics correspondent, writer and broadcaster, Barry Wood. Welcome, Barry. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Can I start with you, Barry? Because it's an important week of central bank meetings. We've got the Fed, the European Central Bank, the Bank of Japan all meeting and um, the Fed, first of all, it's expected to raise interest rates by uh, 25 basis points. That'll take rates to f- between five and a quarter and five and a half percent, the highest since 2001. But what everybody is wondering and will be looking for clues in the Fed statement and Jerome Powell's comments as to whether this is the final hike of, uh, of the cycle. So where do you stand on this, Barry? What do you think and what do you think we should be looking out for from the Fed? I was stunned when I saw that the analysts, 99.4% of them surveyed, say there will be a 25 basis point hike. As to your question, is this the last one? I think uh, Jay Powell and his colleagues will be data dependent. And they have said that there would be two more this year. This would be one. So I suppose if the economy remains strong, Peter, we're probably going to have one more between September and December. That seems to chime with a, a report in the Wall Street Journal overnight. And they have quite good sources within the Fed who are saying that Fed officials are still not comfortable uh, that they've beaten inflation and more needs to be done. 
Yeah, I think that's true. Look, uh, it's sticky, isn't it, is the word of the day. Sticky inflation. But, my goodness, what a dramatic uh, decline in inflation over the past, well, four to six months. But I think the question that is before the FOMC is, at what point does a rising interest rate really translate into a weaker economy, causing more problems than successes. I think the successes are there for all to see. Employment continues to improve. The economy grows at a 2 to 3% rate. But at some point, you know, does the straw on the camel's back become too much? Mm. Probably the answer is, at least from those analysts surveyed, no, not this time. We can handle one more. Mm. Yeah, I wonder whether or not the uh, fall in inflation, which has been, as you say, quite uh, sharp, um, is that a false figure? Um, it's difficult to know because the U.S. seems to have been insulated quite well from um, the, the very sharp rise in energy prices around the world. And it's been insulated quite well from the Russia-Ukraine war, although it is a major supplier of armaments for that. But um, if inflation, for example, were to tick up again in the U.S., I think the Fed might want to have more than just two increases in interest rates before the end of the year. You know, we are seeing inflation in the U.S. at very low levels relative to most of the rest of the world. Mm. And I think that's something that um, is very unusual in this respect. What is notable... Sorry, what is notable is that commodity prices are starting to rise once again. The Bloomberg Commodity Index has rebounded now from its year low um, back in May. I think it's up about 10% since then. That presumably is going to start putting more pressure on inflation again and could lead to the surprise. Yes, I, th- I, I would agree with that. I think that, uh, you know, as I say, there's been a, a, probably a, a slightly artificial um, suppression of, of inflation in the US and uh, unlike the rest of the world, where um, uh, it's been much higher. I have to say that, of course, here in Hong Kong, we've also benefited from that same suppression of inflation. So um, we've, we've been somewhat lucky here in Hong Kong, too. I agree. I, the other thing is sentiment. I think in the U.S. in particular, and Barry can comment on this as well, but people still don't feel it, right? The, the U.S. presidential candidates are still using inflation as one of their main main campaign slogans and and you know and they're getting some uh, some reaction to it and some support for it and I think just like we're talking about China's measures to improve the economy I think there's also a lack of trust in the US and elsewhere about the uh, government measures to to move forward in this area as well which really affects the economy as well who who yeah, can Stuart I I would challenge what you say about uh, the figure being higher. Look, the price of eggs has come down dramatically. Airline prices, ticket prices are down. Gasoline prices are down. Now, there's still a lot of prices that are still very high. But I think that people are beginning to see that some prices have retreated. Yes, and and this is where um, the U.S. has been able to benefit in a way that the rest of the world has not. Um, and I think that you, you, uh, the U.S. has been somewhat isolated. Um, one other factor that I think we should look into, and that is that it certainly would not be welcomed by Joe Biden if he does become the Democrat 
candidate for president next year, uh, it will not be welcomed by him if there were to be interest rates occur in 2024. So I'm sure he will be putting pressure on the Fed to, in, to get rid of all their interest rate increases during 2023. So That's a good this point. Is, this, is a, this is going to be quite a challenge, I think, for, for the Fed. Do they put it up another 25 basis points, maybe even 50 basis points, or even 75 basis points before the end of this year? Um, and uh, my, my guess is that it, it will be a le at least a 50 basis points increase before the end of this year. What, what is noticeable is how the Fed, which got it wrong right at the beginning, didn't it, by saying inflation was transitory um, when it clearly wasn't um, and, and proved not to be, but then got on they top of... They didn't listen to us, Peter. No, they should have been listening to this program. Maybe they are now. But they, they, they certainly got on top of it in a way that maybe central banks like the Bank of England, which also got it wrong at the beginning, but still have got it wrong. The European Central Bank, they haven't really got on top of their um, inflation either. How, how has the Fed managed this when other other central banks around the world haven't. It's just been out there much quicker than the other central banks. Um, it's been, it, it's, it's resumed its role as sort of global leader in this respect. And it's been very positive about increasing interest rates. It hasn't felt reluctant to do so. Um, that's in, um, in sharp contrast to the way the European Central Bank has been desperately slow and very, very reluctant to increase. Mm -hmm. And the Bank of England, likewise, very slow, very reluctant, believing that any increase in interest rates would be very damaging to a very weak economy. And I think this shows the difference between the economic situation in the US, which remains and has been very strong for the last, um, well, quite a number of years, frankly, and the weakness of the European and UK economies, which uh, are, are what are causing the central banks to think longer and harder um, and more negatively about interest rate increases. They have to do it because uh, they need to choke off the very high inflation. It does look as though that is beginning to work in Europe and the UK, um, but they're still many months behind uh, where the U.S. is on this respect. Mm. You know, just to add to that, Stuart, I think one of the strengths of the Federal Reserve system is the regional bank structure. You've got people who are in San Francisco, Kansas City, Atlanta, Minneapolis, right around the country, who are very much in touch with business, business conditions in their region. They then bring that data into these large meetings of, what, 20 people or so around the, this very large table at the Federal Reserve every six weeks. So I think the skill has been that Jay Powell has been able to take all those inputs and shape that into a common response. And he's held together a open market committee that does include now some people on the left that weren't there a year ago. So, yeah, I agree. I think the Fed has been ahead. They were slow, but they're doing fine now. Yeah, I don't want to be too overconfident, but because you know things could move very quickly. But the the people that that Barry was citing, the heads of the regional regional feds that have been to Hong Kong over the years, have almost invariably been much more substantial in what they said about the economy and the local economy, not just generalizations, but actually showing that they actually have some understanding of what's going on. Not that they're always right. They're not. Nobody's always right. At the same time, 
just a little bit more 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 assured and also they seem to have more confidence in what they were saying than others who who are uh, maybe shy away from saying any, anything substantial at all yeah I, I think for the benefit of our listeners though we should acknowledge the fact that this is a federal not a, a single country type of decision and the the state of the economy in in the different states around the US is vastly different and yeah. and so it is a consensus um, that is arrived at um, the the fact is that they've done extremely well as you say Barry and I think that's that's to its credit let me ask you about another one of the central banks that's meeting this week, the, the Bank of Japan. What, what is interesting is that Japan's uh, core consumer price is 3.3% now year on year um, in June. Inflation in Japan is now higher uh, than in the US. And if you look at the core core uh, number, which sort of excludes uh, food and energy, it's up over 4%. It's at a 41-year high. Um it's odd, isn't it, that here's the Fed raising rates, whereas the Bank of Japan seems very, very reluctant to go and tighten monetary policy. How, how long do you think that can continue for? Until wages really begin to rise in Japan. I think that's what Mr. Ueda is trying to achieve. This yield curve control is going to continue. They can take a weaker yen until they really see some increase in wages. I think that he can look at that inflation. Of course, he's worried about it. As you say, it's a very high number. But I think they want wages to rise, and then he'll tap the brakes. He won't hit them dramatically, but tap the brakes. Yeah, hitting dramatically is not a Japanese characteristic. But but I, I agree. <laughs> Except for Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah, well, that, and you, you know how that went. But, uh, but at the same time, I agree completely. I can agree with Barry. The wage, the wage rises, increases, although they've, they've started, which they weren't doing anything at all for a while. They're certainly not disappointing or not. They're disappointing, I'm sorry, not too encouraging. So I, I think Barry's right. I think there almost has to be some movement eventually, but not yet. And politically, they walk a tight line because any changes like this have uh, have effects beyond what the what the actual measure is in itself. That's true in any country, but especially in Japan, when everything is they try to order things so so carefully, often not with great success, but they still keep trying to do that. <laughs> is the Bank of Japan making the same mistake the Fed made though, fifteen, sixteen months ago, when the Fed? didn't do anything when inflation was clearly rising because they wanted to see more evidence that this was really sustainable. They described it as transitory. And then we all saw them, you know, look rather silly um, as a result. Is the Bank of Japan just making the same mistake now? Inflation is there. Um, maybe it isn't transitory, in which case they should be raising rates. Well, well look, they've had 30 years of failure and they have their eye on 30 years of deflation. And I think that um, having inflation is quite a new phenomenon. Don't forget that the central bank governor is a new person in this job. I think he wants to be, as Mark was saying, this is a consensus society. He wants to be particularly careful and not move too rapidly. But the answer to your question, Peter, is yes, it's possible, but too early to say. Yeah, I get it. 
Oh, go ahead. Sure that we could describe what the Fed has done as a mistake. You know, that's your description. I don't think the Fed would describe it as a mistake. Um, yes, the uh, Bank of Japan might move slowly, but I think if you have more than two years of rising inflation with zero interest rates, the the very large pool of savers in Japan, and remember, the the age um, range of these is very high, uh, and so many people just depend on some sort of income from their savings. They're going to start getting a, a little bit uppity about it. And I think that's that's something that the the government will probably be keeping a very close eye on. That's one of the, that's certainly one of the factors. And you, we've heard a lot about balance sheet recessions again lately from, from Richard Ku and from others. The Japanese sort of remember that, and they don't they don't want to keep being reminded as as various suggested. And this is one of the one of the factors weighing on their decision making. Mm. Let's turn our attention to China. There was a Politburo meeting um, yesterday. Uh, they vowed at the end of that to spur consumer spending, tackle unemployment and give more support to the property sector. They described the recovery as torturous, a word we haven't heard them use before um, in, in talking about the uh, the state of the economy. So they were talking about boosting consumption of automobiles, electronic products, home fur- furnishings, also services as well. Um, we've had a long um, line of uh, stimulus measures announced over the last week. I've sort of lost count of them all, but there was a, an 11-point plan from the Commerce Ministry to boost domestic consumption of household goods, from the Central Planner, a 10-step plan uh, to increase uh, car purchases, and then we had one uh, on Friday to go and uh, stimulate the uh, the property market. I think that was a 31-point plan. Um, Mark, let me ask you, uh, are your businesses seeing all of these announcements? Um, are they becoming more confident now that, uh, that the Politburo and the government uh, is on top of things and the, and the recovery now can sort of gain some traction? I think the answer is no. <laughs> At least not, not, not. <laughs> Not, 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 not at this point because it's been all over the place. And the, you know, it's the the announcement was not many details, as has been pointed out by by many commentators as well. It's nice to boost autos and electronics and home furnishing, which are all businesses that are that are part of our 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 forum. And you know, they're they're happy to see that, but they haven't seen much boost to that yet. And so the worry is still there. We're about to do a session that I'd planned for some time, navigating uneven growth. And I'd planned that after the pandemic, thinking we'd be talking about the rest of Asia and not China. Instead, it's going to focus more on China than the rest of Asia for exactly the the issues you just cited. You need to rename that seminar, that session to Navigating Torturous Growth. That seems to be the latest latest word. So I don't want to to touch that. The other thing I just was going to mention, it's interesting that in the statement, there also was an encouragement of increasing, increasing international trade investment and specifically international flights. Which, which you know, it's just, I don't know if that's a main indicator, but it's indicative. And just to give you a number, as of June, uh, I think China's flights to the U.S. have reached 6% of what they had been in 2019. Mm. Wow. And I know the U.S. is a little outlier on that, but that just shows you, you know, it's indicative of what's going on, I think, to some extent. Yeah, I, I think that... Um... The statement is probably very guarded because it's actually the situation in China is probably a little bit worse than many people think. 
the property market is in an absolute disaster as a, as a situation. And uh, although the, we've not yet seen proper collapses, I think there are clear danger signals that there could be some serious property collapses. I'm, I'm more bothered about the auto industry. It is building cars that people are not necessarily wanting to buy. And it's beginning to look very much like the bicycle industry of um, maybe 10 years ago, when China started building, um, making millions and millions of bicycles, mainly for the sort of um, city center free bicycle ride sort of industry and then what we saw were bicycles dumped on every street corner mm. um or, and every river so i'm i'm a bit bothered that um you know how many people are going to be buying um cars from china albeit that they will be very cheap but the the, the consumer is not terribly interested and there's no evidence that the consumers really want any of the very cheap cars which are what they're trying to export the more expensive cars coming out of china are fine and i don't think we need to think about that too carefully but it's the cheap cars that are the worry and i think uh, and, and the volumes are just uh, well, they talk about these volumes. They're incredible numbers, but they're just, I just don't think they're going to make it. it it's also a bit odd, isn't it, that the government feels that it can dictate um, which things you really ought to be buying. Buy more cars, buy more electronic products, buy some cultural goods and things. People consume things that they really, really want. They don't really follow government advice on, you know, today's the day to go and buy some more furniture or something oh. like that. No, I, I don't don't entirely agree with you there, Peter. Because in China, people are very, very disciplined, and they do <laughs> uh, they do do what the government tells them within their within their ability to do so. Now, of course, when you start talking about big ticket items, that's beyond their ability in some instances. But it's it, it, but if it's um, uh, political things where it's low ticket items people will be very disciplined and, and, and do what the government tell them within, within Peter, these... I, I think your question uh, addresses it mirrors the delicious irony of the Politburo being that paragon of the market economy you know that's that's <laughs> amazing I mean this this transformation of language and of practice is really stunning and of course, uh, I think the Chinese economy is going to come back rather strongly. I see that the Stewart's favorite, the International Monetary Fund, is going to revise up its economic forecast tomorrow. I'll be there. I should ask a question on your behalf, Stuart. But Thank I'll you. bet they're going to say 5% for China for 2023. Barry, just to, to back up what you said on the language from the Politburo, one of the things they said, which is about private companies, they said it's necessary to encourage enterprises to dare to venture, dare to invest, dare to take risks and actively create markets. That's not normally the language of the Politburo, is it? No, I was going to cite that statement. Uh, I was just about to talk exactly about that because – that's just what we're all worried about. And that's what, our, you know, our members are worried about and others, because if there is more interference in, in that spirit that they're talking about, which certainly has existed to a great extent, and that, that's helped underpin the, uh, the growth of, of tech in China over the past few years, if that is no longer, no longer so easy to do, and if it's controlled to some extent, that would not be a good sign. So, that statement is pretty ironic. Hmm. I, I yeah, so, well, welcome right, back, Peter. Jack Maher and uh, 
<laughs> yes. I mean, it, it, there's a lot of focus, isn't there, on private companies saying they're equal now to state-owned enterprises. But I've had people say they struggle to believe that China, under its current system, can really treat private companies equal to state-owned enterprises. But do you think there is really a genuine change? Um, well, we can, we can do, we... Go ahead. <laughs> No, I, I'd just say I don't think there is a genuine change. I think it, it, you know, it's like this big line I keep referring to. Very, very difficult to change direction. It takes a long, long time to change direction. Okay, but well, I, I hope there is. But we could do a whole program on private companies and yes. defining them. Because it's a, it's a it's very challenging to say the least. Well, we might so we might do that. So we've got eight minutes left. I'm going to ask each of you one in time about the various PMI surveys that we've had. I'm going to ask you, Barry, about uh, the US. Perhaps Stuart, you could do the UK and Europe, and uh, Mark, you can comment on Japan. But Barry, we had the um, the PMI data out there. It showed manufacturing improving, although still in contraction, but services pulling back um, in July and it was falling to a, a multi-month low. What was interesting was the, the commentary um, in the PMI talking about sticky um, inflation and that was a, a concern. They said the survey index of selling prices, which has been a reliable indicator of consumer price inflation, is sending a worrying signal that further falls in the rate of inflation below 3% may prove elusive in the near term and they also noted uh, that uh, that the, the 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 growth now is being driven entirely uh, by the services sector so i'm just wondering what you think about that are there some warning signs in there that maybe these interest rate rises are now starting to significantly slow the economy that could be i, I again i think it's too early to say but i will observe that uh, the earnings reports that are coming this week and next will be quite important because they will reveal something of how companies are looking into the last quarter of 23 and the first quarter of 24. Do they see a dramatically slowing economy? That'll be revealed in the next few days. We also have a problem of potential strikes because UPS, the United Parcel Service, based in Atlanta, they're making a lot of noises about going on strike. And along with FedEx, they are really the ones delivering Amazon products to people's doors. I'm aware that Amazon now has its own fleet of delivery vehicles. But those two big companies, FedEx and UPS, are the dominant ones. Also, airline pilots are unhappy, and they could strike. And then, of course, you've got the writers in Hollywood and the actors. So that's not going to be good news for Joe Biden if any of those strikes develop. Just to comment, just to comment quickly on what Barry said, I agree completely. And supply chain is sort of the center of what we've all been talking about for a long time, including our clients in FedEx and UPS. And UPS, as I recall, has the largest share, actually. Uh, FedEx is number two. Amazon is a distant third. But there's not enough to make up for it if FedEx goes on strike. There's they're not, not not enough capacity, and that would be a that would be a, a big hit to I think all of us here as well as everywhere else in the world. Okay, Stuart, let me ask you about the UK. You're our expert on on the UK economy. UK economy, economic activity it slowed sharply in July because of rising interest rates hitting consumer spending. The manufacturing downturn also deepened. Uh, the composite PMI fell to 50.7 percent, uh, 50.7 in July, down from 52.8 uh, the previous month. It was the weakest pace of contraction in the private sector since January. 
Uh, the chief business economist at S&P Global Market Intelligence says the data shows the UK economy has come close to stalling. I'm also wondering, Stuart, um, if we should be fearing the dreaded S-word, stagflation. <laughs> well, I don't think so. I don't think so just yet. But it's definitely the case that interest rates are having their effect on trying to bring, bring down interest rates. Consumer spending has reduced very sharply because mortgage rates have gone up. People have to spend their money on things other than uh, consumer goods. And so, and, and so this is a, another reason why you've seen these numbers coming down. They're still above the 50% parity level, but, but I think that uh, it is inevitable that we are going to see probably quite volatile numbers over the remaining six months of this year as the UK battles with trying to ensure that inflation gets to below 5%, which will then achieve the Prime Minister's objective of halving inflation this year. And, and then we'll see where we go from here. Remember, you know, interest rates are high. Um, and going up, and they probably will go up further than the U.S. They've been, they were slower at getting there. We've already discussed that. So, so I think this is one of the reasons why we've seen um, a, a fair slowdown in the last couple of months in the U.K. And and the numbers just reflect exactly what uh, we've been t- discussing in the market anyway. And Mark, let me ask you about Japan. Japan's business activity, it did expand for a seventh straight month. The composite PMI is at 52.1, uh, but it is the slowest pace since February. The services PMI did slip slightly to 53.9, but it is still growing for the 11th month. But manufacturing stayed in contraction territory. And in fact, uh, the contraction got worse. The PMI fell to 49.4. That's the lowest reading since March. And there's also signs of inflation increasing, input Price inflation accelerated for the first time in six months and output prices rose at a steeper pace as well. What are you seeing in terms of activity in Japan? It's still pretty, it's still pretty positive compared to what we've, what, we've, what we've seen before. I guess the projections are Japan's economy is going to grow maybe a bit over 1% this year, which doesn't sound spectacular, but for, by Japanese standards, not so badly. But the factors, <laughs> factors you, you, you mentioned... Uh, inflation, the weekend, other 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 concerns, and just confidence, and the demographic issue as well. The oldest developed mm-hmm. economy, all those sort of factors are playing in. So the Japanese are never quite confident enough to move forward as much as they might. And the government, as we just described in uh, in terms of rate setting, are giving mixed mixed signals. So still still worries. But when you talk to some of our members, they're Many of them, more, much more, more of them talk about Japan than they ever did before, about alternatives to maybe manufacture, uh, to develop their businesses. Not all of them, but more than say a year ago or two years. Ago. So they do see some promise there. They may be wrong, but um, maybe they're comparing with other places as well. But but that I think is a positive sign. And the tourist industry in Japan has picked up massively as well. So that's yeah. boosting the economy. Okay. Absolutely. My my son is there now and can hardly move because there's so many people he has to move to. <laughs> <laughs> it's where all the Hong Kong people are right now, I think. Yeah, okay. Well, right. thank you very much. Good to hear all your thoughts this morning. That was Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. You also heard Barry Wardell, US Economics Correspondent over in Washington, D.C. and Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant, Stuart Allcroft. Peter, who is this?
Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information from around Asia in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von File, founder of Financial Shield, and Carlos Casanova, senior Asia economist at UBP. With a view from Japan is John Byrne, vice chair of research at the Asian Development Bank Institute. Have a good Tuesday. Money Talk.